Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. 60 seconds. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in, and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade-in for your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Hey, it's Todd. Before we get started, if you like what you hear or you have any questions about this podcast, please tweet at me at at Todd underscore Garner on Twitter. Look forward to hearing from you. For nearly 30 years, Todd Garner has overseen blockbuster films like Con Air, Anger Management, Triple X, 13 Going on 30, and Black Hawk Down. Why are they letting you make these movies? Join Todd as he shares tips and stories from the front lines of producing in Hollywood. I'm Adam Sandler. I'm Rebel Wilson. This is Jeff Probst. This is Maula Wayans. I'm Eli Roth. Hey, it's Ed Helms. This is Shay Mitchell. Hey everybody, this is Kevin James, and this is The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide, the producer's guide with Todd Garner. Todd Garner. Todd Garner. Todd Garner. What a combination. I find when I read a lot of the trade press and the media press that there is this feeling that what is happening in the content business at any time has never happened before. And whatever changes are happening, either positive or negative, it's the first time it's ever happened. If a year starts out where the box office is not working, oh, shit. It's the worst thing. Movies are over. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And generally what happens by the summer, it recovers. Or if it isn't matching what happened last year, or if everybody's only making big studio movies, independents are dead. I find that being a student of the history of the business really gives me a lot of comfort because I can tell you that most of it is bullshit. It's happened in cycles since the dawn of the movie and television business. Everything that's happening now has happened before. I was trying to figure out who would be the right person to talk about this subject with. And Mike Medavoy, who is a legend in the business, was gracious enough to come on. Mike is a guy who has been an executive. He's been an agent. He founded Orion Pictures. He's the former chairman of TriStar Pictures. He was the former head of United Artists. And he has since started a company called Phoenix Pictures. This is a guy who has been involved in so many huge movies. He's worked with Steven Spielberg, Francis Coppola. He has been a part of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, Annie Hall, Apocalypse Now, Raging Bull, Network, Coming Home, just to name a few. We go into all of those movies, plus movies like Platoon and a lot of my favorite movies like Robocop and Terminator. And we talk about how has the business changed? What is the reality? What is the difference between what it was like making movies in the 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, and now? I find that he is a guy who not only rolls with the punches, but is able to consistently make the kind of movies he wants to make, the kind of movies he wants to see, and he doesn't give a shit about what the media or what the tide is saying. And that's why I love him, and that's why I think you'll enjoy this podcast. 
911. What is your emergency? A brutal murder that took place in Washington, D.C. To do what he did to four people, including a 10-year-old boy, is just beyond words. A family and their housekeeper held hostage and tortured for 19 hours before their mansion was set on fire with them inside. It's just hard to imagine that such a nice family could be the victim of something so depraved. In WTOP's 22 Hours, An American Nightmare, you'll be shocked by the new details of this heinous crime, and you won't believe how investigators brought the killer to justice. He did not act alone. Mark my words. Download 22 Hours, An American Nightmare, with new episodes every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. This is the Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. All right, I'm here with Mike Medavoy. Hello, Mr. Medavoy. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Good, man. Thank you for doing this. I'm really, really excited to be talking to you today. I've been doing this for a while. I've had a lot of producers on. But uh, in doing my research on you for this talk we're going to have, I was blown. <laughs> I was blown away. It's so daunting to t- try to get through your biography. You're, I don't use the word legend lightly, but I mean, just in terms of all your accomplishments, you, you've you've been a part of most of my favorite movies. And just as a little primer for this discussion, you were an agent, successful executive, massively successful producer. You are a Motion Picture Pioneer of the Year Award winner, Cannes Festival Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Producers Guild of America Vision Award winner. You're inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which means you have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. You're one of the original founding members of the Board of Governors of Sundance Institute. You're Chairman Emeritus, American Cinematheque. Stella Adler, Actors Marlon Brando Award, the Declared Cavalier of the French Government's Legion of Honor. Your movies have won numerous, numerous Academy Awards, Golden Globes, etc. And you're a best-selling author of You're Only As Good As Your Next One, 100 Great Films, 100 Good Films, and 100 For Which You Should Have Been Shot. That's what I really wanted to talk to you about today. About, about the ones I got shot. <laughs> yes, that's all, that's all we're going to talk about. So in the title of your book is exactly right. You're only as good as your next one. And you've, you've picked hundreds and hundreds of movies, some of which have been great, others have not. And so I want to talk to you about kind of the history of the business, how you picked those movies going forward. And we'll, we'll get into those specific uh, titles uh, in a minute and how you feel movies are being picked today. You were born in China. Correct. You grew up in Chile, and then you came to the States in the mid-60s. You started off at Universal? Well, no, I I got here in uh, 1957, at the end of 57. Okay. I went to a year of high school, then I went to college, I went to UCLA, graduated from UCLA with a history and political science diploma, got my American citizenship, went in the Army. I was in the Army for six years as a result of having to be in the uh, reserves, Got to travel, went to Korea, went to um, Panama, and then, very strangely, I wound up leaving the kind of history and political science part of my life, got into the business, and just by coming down here and working on a summer camp, somebody asked me if I would be interested in going into the film business, and I said, of course, I'd love it. I got introduced to somebody at Universal. They sent me up to the uh, international division because they spoke a few languages, and then they they didn't have a job. So I said, well, I'll take any job. And they said, well, the only job that's available is in the mailroom. I said, okay, well, I'll take it. I said, when do I start? He said, Monday. <laughs> so uh, it was, I think it was Saturday at the time. 
Wow. Friday, Friday, went into the mailroom thinking I was going to be the brightest, smartest guy, and <laughs> turns out everybody else had a you know master's degree or a PhD, and if not smarter, certainly as smarter as I was. Do you remember movies growing up, or as an adolescent, or as a teenager that really affected you? That you thought, man, this is something I really would love to do. Well, I remember seeing movies as a kid, you know, and uh, there obviously they were in English, and my English was not as good as. It is today, obviously. But, you know, there were the kind of action-adventure movies, the westerns, you know, the usual thing that a young boy would would enjoy. Uh, all the Errol Flynn movies, all the John Wayne movies. You know, it was obviously affected by it. And, and it was, uh, you know, all of our, my family's dream was to come to the United States. And we had, my grandfather had already come to the States. We were unable to get into it. And um, finally... Again, I was working in a camp, and one of the kids' father was the um, U.S. consul, and he got us uh, visas to come to the states wow. to, to live. Camp is an important part. part yeah. of your life. You yeah, met well, a lot of people at camp. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and so you were an agent for a number of years, and you worked with some incredible clients from the likes of like Steven Spielberg and Hal Ashby and Coppola and Gene Wilder and Jane Fonda, etc. What made you make the transition from being uh, in the mailroom at Universal to becoming an agent? You were an agent for at least 10 years, correct? I was an agent for 10 years, exactly 10 years, as a matter of fact. It was kind of interesting because being at Universal, you know, which is the home of MCA, which is at one time the agency, yeah. maybe the most important agency in the business, and realizing that I didn't want to be sitting in an office, it was kind of interesting because I, I thought – you know, I've got to get out of here and go see what the rest of the world looks like. And that was a way to, to do that, was to become an agent. As an agent, you kind of travel around, you go different places. And there were different moments that were became important. One was I worked for a small agency at the start with a guy by the name of Bill Robinson. It was called Robinson & Associates. And he handled a bunch of, of actors, mainly actors, mostly people who had been in the business in the 40s and 50s some even in the 30s. And I got to know them. And there was Keenan Wynn and Lloyd Nolan and Van Heflin and people, you know, that had been into contract to studios. So there are people that I knew who they were. One of the things he required is that I don't sign anybody. So, you know, I was being paid to just basically help them out. And I don't, I don't know that I learned a lot, but he did have one client there that was, you know, stuck out. He was younger, and that was Tony Bill. Wow. Tony said to me, you know, you ought to be representing directors and writers instead of just actors. And I thought that was a, a really good idea. And it was a big change because when I left Robinson and went to GAC, which merged with CMA, I started going after directors. And that was when I went after Spielberg. And, you know, they were all young kids and n none of us had done anything yet. Right. There was, you know, there was Spielberg and John Milius, and John brought uh, George Lucas around, and then slowly I started, I think, gather most of the young filmmakers coming up. Well, that's a good segue into what what I did want to talk to you about, which is because you mentioned the 30s, the studio system, and the way that those movies were put together was you had a studio boss who had a roster of uh, actors and writers under, and under contract, under contract, and they would just 
package the movies themselves inside of their four walls and, you know, say, call the actor and go, you're going to be in this Western today or this drama tomorrow. Right. And, and the direct, and you put the directors today, uh, which is, you know, why Howard Hawks got to do so many different genres. They were, these directors were, you know, almost, it's almost like the television system where they were being allowed to direct all kinds of different things for the studio system. And the fact that you then went after directors and writers, it really sort of informs not only the way I feel your career has – you've worked with uh, Scorsese a bunch of times. You've worked with Neil Foreman a, a number of times. Woody Allen. Woody Allen a number of times. Blake Edwards. For sure. And so all of these directors then become what the studios now are greenlighting movies off of going forward because it wasn't – the studio system was broken down. They needed material. They saw v- different visions of d- different directors that they would be attracted to or not. And so you go from being an agent to being an executive. The way I look at it, it's, it's kind of broken up in kind of three separate chunks. And I just want to kind of give the audience some perspective of your insane career as an executive. And these are just to name a few. These are just some of the, my, my favorites. Mm-hmm. And, and the three chunks seem to break out into being at United Artists, where you did right. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Rocky and Annie Hall and Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull and Network and Coming Home, to name a few. Then you, in 78, you co-found Orion Pictures, right. where you go on to be an executive and, and a creative force of Platoon and Amadeus and Robocop and Terminator and Dances with Wolves and Silence of the Lambs. And then in 1990, you become chairman of TriStar Pictures, where you make Philadelphia, Terminator 2, Sleepless in Seattle, Cliffhanger, Fisher King, and Legends of the Fall, to name a few. And so I look at that career as an executive, and it's first of all, it's daunting and incredibly, the, the number of Academy Awards and the, and the quality of those movies. You then become the picker of these movies. So walk me through, if you can, how those movies got greenlit. How did you guys, in all of those different iterations when you were an executive, decide what movies to make? And walk me through the green light process. And then, we'll, and then you and I can walk through now, now what the green light process is and, and kind of your feelings about that. But back then, those are all maverick, incredibly successful, groundbreaking movies. How did you go through your career and kind of walk me through the stages of picking those movies? I think the first thing that we should talk about is that there's no single person running a studio that can do it on their own. No. Was there ever? Uh, Yeah, there was. There was was a time when Louis B. Mayer could say, hey, we're going to make that movie. We're going to put all this stuff together. The changes in the business are really kind of fascinating because the agency business, which is where Lou Wasserman and those guys came out of, They started putting movies together. Yeah. That's when the studios needed agents to help them put stuff together. It was a lesson, actually, because the last three movies that I put together when I was at IFA were Jaws, because we we had the book. Then after that was Young Frankenstein and The Sting. So those were put together right before I left at IFA. Right. As an agent. As an agent. So... I knew how to do that. Right. I knew how to put the pieces together. Well, you had the book and you had Spielberg. Well, I didn't have Spielberg at the time. Oh, really? Right. Because Spielberg and I had a parting of the ways, in part because Spielberg was under contract to Universal. He wanted to work outside of Universal, but actually it didn't pay for somebody else to try to make a picture with Spielberg because he was under contract to Universal. And therefore, if they're building Spielberg up, you know, it wasn't going to help them because they would they would have to go out and try to borrow him again. Right. So 
you know, I asked Stephen to actually get out of his contract at Universal because I had, I had just pulled another director out of it, Phil Kaufman, and he he just didn't feel that he could do it. He couldn't do it to um, Sid Sheinberg, who he was very close to. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you need to get another agent because, you know, if you want to work in feature films. Right. Now, I was wrong, and it was, you know. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it was really at that point. We've since nothing to do. Yeah, we've since become good friends, right. and he's you know actually going to planning to do another movie together. We we did uh, Hook, so that was you know that was a lesson mm-hmm. in how to put movies together, and that's basically the seventies. That was you know an important part of what I did. Then I love movies, so there was no reason for me not to try to pull pieces together and. Putting Young, Young Frankenstein together was a really great, you know, trial for me because I represented Gene and Peter Boyle and and um, Marty Feldman actually. Wow! So how did that piece of material come to you? Well, I, it's a, you know, it's a long. Every, every one of these is a long oh, story. Sure. We could probably be here all day. But <laughs> I ran into Gene Wilder at a clothing store, and I said, you know. You ought to be producing movies and directing or, you know, writing something. And then I became his agent, and I called him up one day when both Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman were in my office. And I said, do you have something that the three of you can do together? And he said, well, I don't think, you know, I've got something, but it's really what for me. Uh, I said, well, you know, expand the other two roles. And basically he wrote it, and wow. we um, started putting all the pieces together and one day getting the movie made how mm. how do you get that movie made a black and white comedy with those guys just because off of gene's well, power at that well it's a combination of mel and right. Gene. right okay. i mean you can't forget mel no and if you look at that movie today and i looked at it recently you can tell what gene's work is and you can tell what mel's yeah it was interesting because it was set up at columbia at first and then columbia decided that they didn't want to spend 2.4 million dollars they wanted to only spend two so uh, Mike Greskoff took it over to, to Fox, uh, and as a result of that, you know, they, they decided to do it. That's great. And Alan Ladd did. So then you become into the, go into the executive ranks, knowing how to package a movie, because you've done it through the agencies. Right. What was the school of thought back then? What was the school of thought of what you wanted to make? Because the other thing that we'll get into when we talk about greenlighting movies now, and even greenlighting movies in the 90s and the early 2000s was DVD business was so robust. And slightly before that, the international business was starting to open up. So those things became huge motivators to greenlight movies. You didn't have that. You had theatrical release worldwide, but you didn't have home video. How was your team? Because I know, yes, you're right. There's not one person. But first of all, how was your team making the decisions? And two, who was involved in those decisions in the green light? Who was in those meetings? Well, it was fairly simple, but it's not that simple because (laughs) there are a number of changes that have occurred to the business over the years, right? I would say in the 70s, uh, which is what we're talking about, the cost of marketing got to be huge, and it started escalating. And why was that? Television? Television, right. Mm-hmm. You had to buy television in order to, to get a movie out there. Because prior to that, it was really newspaper. Right. And radio. Right. And it, that was fairly inexpensive. Mm-hmm. But when it, when it started to get really expensive, then you had to have other places to put the product. And now more stations started to come in. Therefore, more places you could put your movie and sell it. You know, that kind of escalated to the point really where I think... By the 90s, it was pretty clear to me that 
And now, of course, the cost of marketing is so high that it's almost impossible. You know, there are two things that are missing now in that, you know, there's no video business anymore. Matter of fact, I've got thousands of videos. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> You're not uh, to play them. <laughs> there's nowhere to play them anymore. Yeah, that's true. And then there's syndication. The whole syndication market's fallen apart. Right. The one thing that United Artists had for all those years, and that's that was an interesting company, actually, because I, I just went to North Carolina where they had a 100-year anniversary of United Artists. Wow. And when you think about how UA was formed, and I'm kind of jumping a little bit, but you think about how UA was formed. It was, you know, four actors who got together and decided to right. distribute their own movies. To break out of the studio system that would existed. That create exactly. their own create their own modern day studio. Right. Now by the end of the late forties, I would say, beginning of the fifties, the model wasn't working. They were older, their therefore, you know, their their movies weren't doing well. Arthur Krim and Bob Benjamin and the Pickers, when they bought the company, they basically said, look, we'll pay you for the company with the movies that we make, and that's how you'll get paid. Uh, Chaplin wanted to move to Switzerland, so they were lucky enough to have, you know, three big movies, maybe even four, as a matter of fact. You know, there was um, African Queen, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, then they had Marty, which won the Academy Award. And then they took off from there. When you were at United Artists and then Orion, the stream of revenue basically was first run theatrical worldwide. Right. right. Then there was a video. There was still there was video then. There was some video. And but but really the first yeah, video, but really the first downstream would be pay TV. Right. Then cable TV. Right. Then whatever video was there. Right. And then you would also have then your ancillaries like planes and things like that. Yeah. And Arm the library value. And the armed forces. Yeah. Yes. And, and the library value. And, the, and that played over and over again. For sure. In syndication. Yeah. But, you know, United Artists had, was, was great because it had a great international division. And that's when Eric Pleskow used to run the uh, international division. So when these scripts would come in and you guys would develop them and you would look at the filmmaker, you guys like Oliver Stone and things like that, who would be in those meetings to decide, okay, we're going to green light this and what is the budget? Well, usually it was something that myself and whoever was at that point working with me uh, would say would recommend. I mean, the, the story of Cuckoo's Nest is always an interesting one. I was working at um, IFA as the head of the film department. Mm -hmm. I got a call from the head of the of the company and said, hey, you know, Kirk Douglas is looking for an agent. Would you like to, you know, he'd like to meet with you. And I said, well, I said, you know, I, I was at CMA when Kirk was a client of Freddie Fields. And he, he was pretty brutal on Freddie. And I said, you know, I, I don't really want to, I said, you know, I really don't want to do that. I said, I don't think I want to represent Kirk Douglas. So he said, well, you know, why? Just go meet him. I'm sure he's he's a nice guy. Well, I, I did go meet him, and I, and he was a, you know, it was terrific. And we had a wonderful conversation about movies. And then he called me about two weeks later, and he said, you know, I've decided I'm going to go to the Morris office. I'm going to go with Stan Kamen. But you can represent a project that I've done, and I've asked Stan if it's okay. And I, it's called One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And I thought, man, you know, I'm going to be left with, with something not that, you know, not that great to try to sell, especially since Kirk wanted to play the part. And at that point, really, Kirk was too old for it. So that was my first kind of know what One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was. I've now moved to 
United Artist, and I'm there for about six months, and I haven't started a movie or whatever I'd started wasn't really up to snuff. And then I get asked by Arthur Krim to come to New York, and I go to New York, and I'm sitting there with Marsha Nassiter, and he said, you know, what the hell are you doing out there? <laughs> I said, well, I'm trying to <laughs> trying to find movies to do. He says, um, do you know how many people work here? I said, no. He said, well, there's about 285 people in this building. And he said, and there's another 200 around the world, and they're going to lose their job unless you can find movies. <laughs> No pressure. So I, I said, okay, well, I'll go back to L.A. tomorrow and, and see if I can find something to do. He, uh, he said, why wait till tomorrow? Leave tonight. So I did. I left, came to my office, and there was the script of One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest with the, the package that Saul's hands had pulled together and some money that he pulled together. And uh, I read the script and sent it to Arthur and I said, okay, here's the one, you know, and to Eric. And I said, here's the one. Let's do this one. So... After negotiating for a while with Saul Zanch, which was always difficult, we decided to make it. And it's so, I mean, it's pure luck. Right. You know. But when you guys were looking at the movies, especially at, at Orion, which <clears throat> you then co-founded and, and you were the head of, because now the way everybody looks at movies is, who are the movies for specifically? What is the audience? Is it theatrical? And all these very philosophical mm-hmm. questions, which, which I feel are just ways to give producers the runaround. But mostly... Were you guys thinking, all right, who are the audiences for this, these movies? I'm assuming they, they're all adult themes. They're all adult movies. You, you, you know, The rating system was not the same as it was now, but basically they were all either really hard PG-13 or R-rated. What were you guys, when you guys were sitting around discussing the material and discussing the release, were you th- discussing how many screens you're going to release it on, who the audience was, all the things that people just obsess over today? All those are natural questions. And some of them you can do in your head without having to go to a machine. Right. Right? I mean, that's the the natural thing. When you read something, if the package is put together, if everybody is on board that you think makes some sense, you know who the audience is going to be. And if you make a really good movie, and I think that's the final question usually, hey, is this going to be a good movie? In my case, as I've said, you know, it's one out of three. It was great. And one out of, you know, the other one was okay, but not necessarily great. And one that you go, you know, what were you thinking? Right. I think that question is answered. I think what's happened since then is that there's the need for a lot of people to make themselves feel better for more information. Mm-hmm. Now, I was at UA, I think, like in 1976 or 77, and two guys came in to see me that I'd never met before who were teaching in England, and they apparently had had, had created a machine that could tell you whether a picture would work or not. Well, I, I thought it was fairly ridiculous. I mean, you know, if you really need a machine to tell you what's good and what's not, you know, something's wrong or something wrong with you for sure. You know what an audience is going to like or not like. But there's so many parts to that question that it's almost impossible to try to figure it out exactly. The why is really hard. Yeah, it's part of it. I mean, I'm thinking of projects that, you know, I like, and why do I like them? Why do I attach myself to something and not to other things, Mm -hmm. right? Part of it, I go, well, this is never going to get done, Right. right? So why waste my time? Two is, do I really want to spend, you know, six months and find out that what I've done is really the birth of a mouse? And then there's stuff I go, wow, by the time this is over, 
nobody's going to know who I am. You know, I don't care, you know, what it is. Uh, they they will know the things that I was a part of, and that's really what's important right. to me. So when you look at mo- back at movies like Platoon and RoboCop, two movies that just com- my I, I, Platoon maybe a little bit less so, although the political climate was mm-hmm. you guys were very daring at that moment to go make that movie. But something like RoboCop, which just is defies, and people try to have have. Um, put that tone into mm-hmm. other movies and have not had the, the degree of success if, if, if you did with that movie. When you were looking at movies like that that are just genre-busting, going against the grain, was that something that you guys did strategically or was it something that just came about because you guys yeah, have there, great there, taste? There was, no, there was no strategy. Just to, <laughs> to, there was no strategy to do RoboCop. I'm, nor, you know, there was no strategy to do, you know, I can think of a number of other movies, the Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no strategy to do Caddyshack. Right. You, know, you know, they'd come and pitched another project which I didn't think was very good, but then they finally came in and pitched this one. Uh, Hoosiers, there was no strategy to do Hoosiers. Uh, I look back and I think, I go, well, I've done some really terrific sports movies, you know, Rocky being one of them. Yeah, and the best. Hoosiers, um, a bunch of baseball movies, um, comedies. I mean, I've tried to do as many different things as possible. And I think Part of it is I can get really bored easily, and that's the one thing I don't want to do. I don't want to be bored. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I'm, I, I've been lucky. You know, I've been involved with some really interesting people, and mm-hmm. and that, you know, that's what's made my life. And when you were coming up through the ranks there at UA, and then you know, have, being the chairman of both Orion and TriStar, how important was the preview process back then? Would you you were in recruiting audiences because like because right. th- I heard a uh, Verhoeven tell a great story about RoboCop of like you had to stick with all that violence and then the one laugh that comes after he's blown to pieces just lets all the air out of the bag yeah and lets you settle into what you're about to watch when we <laughs> previewing a movie like that and previewing movies like Platoon and previewing movies like you know The Fisher King. How did that work? How did you guys know to to you know the the right creative vision to you know which road to go down? Well, well, in part, it, you know, the creative vision is is there's two parts to it, right? There's the director's feeling about what the creative vision that he created to make the film in the first place. Then there is the MPAA's requirement, <laughs> right? Right? Do you want an R movie or do you want you know uh, Last Tango in Paris, mm-hmm. which which as you know was an X, right? And in that case, you know, there was a line, and I think the the, the shot that you're referring to, or the shots that you're referring to, are the ones where he starts to get blown to to bits. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how far, you know, do you go? It was a battle between us and the MPAA's rating board as to how far we could go. And you know, support. I think supporting the filmmaker was always an important part of what we did. Well, you started at a company which is was founded on that UA. Yeah, because it, we were totally, you know, the UA was totally dependent on the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. It was a distribution company. It didn't have people under contract. Right. I mean, it had contracts with people, but didn't have people, you know, that they could go like the old studios could, just put, you know, Gregory LaCava or Mervyn right. Leroy or whoever it was that was making movies for them. Here, we we had a bunch of people that worked with us. And UA did that for years. I mean, I had Hector Lancaster. And, you know, these people made movies for UA because they felt 
there were two things that were important. One was they would get a real accounting as opposed to, you know, what often happens is that the accounting department has figured out how to I wouldn't use the word cheat the uh <laughs> the the you know producer director whoever has a piece of it. And the second was that they would be left alone to make the film that they wanted to make. Right. Within reasonable issues. And I feel like you've done that your whole career because in 1995 you started <clears throat> Phoenix Pictures which I don't know if you is there some significance to the rising of the phoenix no, there wasn't uh, phoenix my wife likes to say hey it was my you know I was my company too <laughs> and she had a company called phoenix enterprises i think you know, it had nothing to do with rising from the ashes because I don't think I ever hit the ashes. <laughs> I was I was going to say you yeah. were you were doing great when you started started the company. And a, as a producer, you've made among other movies, The People versus Larry Flint, App People, Thin Red Line, Zodiac, Shutter Island again with Marty and mm-hmm. Black Swan. Continuing on that theme, you definitely have supported filmmakers and you have worked with them time and time again and have supported their vision throughout your entire career. What does that entail as a producer? Like, what are the challenges of that? And, 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 and kind of what is your North Star when you're thinking of that? Well, I think about, you know, who's talented? You know, how difficult are they to work with? Do I have to get into an argument every single time? Or is it, I don't like to say that, think of myself as having every answer because I don't. You know, I'd like to listen to all the various opinions because, you know, it's time for me to learn something too. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that I that I know are like red flags for me, you know, people with attitudes, people that think they know everything, people who are not willing to listen to other people's opinions. You know, I mean, I think those are the kind of things that are quite bothersome. Not that, you know, they ought to listen to my opinion because mine is one of the opinions that counts. If I can't make a reasonable thought past somebody's brain, then something's wrong. And it could be me, but it it could also be somebody else. Can you think of a time or a movie specifically where you thought, this is not going to end well, that ended amazingly well? Well, Apocalypse Now is a perfect example. It, it's interesting, if you really look at the history of Apocalypse, you know, John Milius, who was an ex-client of mine, wrote the draft, uh, had Francis not done it, George would have probably done it. Although he couldn't get financed, except as a he he thought of doing it as a sixteen millimeter. Francis went out and got you know financing in foreign, and it went from you know nineteen million to thirty million, and it had all kinds of lives. It could have ended really disastrously, but you know it's ended as one of the great yeah. films. In a way, I think it's part of the reason I became Marlon Brando's executor. You know, as Marlon knew that I was a straight shooter. The stories of the making apocalypse now have been well documented. It must have been terrifying during the yeah. Movie. I mean, I you know I got I got <laughs> to the Philippines pretty close to the end of the shooting. I would say probably a month before you know four weeks before the shooting ended, and then of course they had some shooting that they shot up in the Napa Valley. But you know when I got there, Marty Sheen had just had a heart attack. So I wound up at the hospital. Oh, my God. Uh, Then I went to see Francis. Francis had just had an affair, you know, and he was apologizing to his wife. And we were way over. At that point, we were owned by Transamerica. So, you know, they were were going nuts. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we, we probably threatened 
Francis with all kinds of things, none of which we probably would have done, but, you know, we, we figured we'd threaten to take his house. So, you know, it was it was pretty hairy. But, you know, finally it's, you know, it's what was left. Right. And, you know, Francis was a genius in terms of pulling it all together. We we went up to San Francisco to see the first cut, which is five hours, which I gather now he's thinking of releasing. You know, there's a kind of a joke that I always have. You know, Francis was very upset at the fact that he, um, there was another movie that was being done at the time, King Kong, that Dina De Laurentiis was doing. And he couldn't understand how come King Kong wasn't, wasn't being attacked while his movie was being attacked. Well, his movie was about something. <laughs> right. You know, it was about the war in Vietnam. You know, all those stories, all those are part of a of a long career. You right. know, it's like 50-some-odd years of stuff that I've been a part of. And now that you're a producer with this 50-plus years of knowledge under your belt and have seen every permutation of the business going forward, all I hear is how the business has changed, which it has. This has never happened before, which I don't disagree with, because I, as I read the history of the movie business, it always seems to have been, you know, the studios kind of get these big inflated, back in the day, it was musicals and spectacles mm-hmm. like Cleopatra, and then filmmakers come in and kind of, you know, upset the apple cart. And then the same thing with, in the 70s, these big bloated studio movies that, you know, you guys came in and just completely torpedoed mm-hmm. and made these amazing movies. And now the, the lament is, it's only going to be Marvel movies, it's only going to be these big tent poles, and kind of everything has shifted to television in terms of the torpedoing of, of that expectation. How are you finding it as a producer? Like, what gets you up in the morning, and, and kind of where, where are you headed in this new in this new terrain? You know, it's obvious that the business has changed tremendously, and change is a part of life, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we change. We're no longer the kid in the kid in the in the corner. <laughs> Streaming has obviously become a part of our you know lives. Actually, I ran into Ted Sarandos the other day. He said, you know, there was a part in your book where you kind of predict um, Netflix without using Netflix as a, a sample. Now I've got to go back and find find out what did I write. <laughs> um, consolidation has been a part of the the business. You know, start when I think in the late 60s they start coming in. You know, big companies start taking over. Gulf and Western took over Paramount. Transamerica took over UA. You know, the same kind of things are, continue to happen all the time. And that is that people who run these companies start getting older. And there's a question whether they are going to continue to run it because, you know, because everything changes. And it's pretty clear to me that there's going to be too much product. You know, I've gotten a bunch of things from the TV Academy, you know, project, I mean, you know, films that have been done. And, you know, there's just so many of them. Right. You know, I don't know how you go, well, that's really good or not good. There's several pods that you can kind of look at. You can look at the smaller kind of independent movie made by taking a piece here and a piece there and trying to make it work. And, you know, that usually, unfortunately, doesn't work as well. But if you've got really creative people, you know, really good filmmaker and a a good team of people, because it takes a team, I think, to make it work, then you can actually produce something of of interest. Right. And the world is changing. You know, it's the political scene, the, you know, the psychological scene changes, the technology has changed everything. I mean, if you look at the movies today and you take a look at Avengers, I don't know what the number, I, but I heard the number yesterday, and then I thought, wow, that's really taking a big chance to to do that. 
despite the fact that, you know, we all know it's going to be a success, it's going to do probably somewhere between 2 and $3 billion. It's probably going to clear $200 million profit. Right. $200 million is not something you sneeze at unless you want to pick up the, the money when you, after you've sneezed. <laughs> it's a lot of work for, you know, what is not a really good business because if you blow it, you know, you really don't make a very good movie and right. and people don't go, then you're really in trouble. That's what Stephen was saying a few years ago is a few of these big, huge tent poles miss and it's going to be catastrophic. Yeah, well, it hasn't seemed to ha- everybody's, yeah. well, it's, you know, I mean, a couple of years ago, I think Disney had one that mm-hmm. was a total miss. Yeah. You know, they lost $175 million. It's fast to lose it. So speaking of this profit and loss, because that's the thing that um, Netflix really has the advantage of, is they don't have P&Ls. I mean, they have metrics and analytics they're doing for Mm -hmm. viewership and and subscriber retention and and adding new subscribers, but they don't have the traditional P&L. When you were at UA and Orion, what did your P&L look like? I mean, did you guys use comps? How can you comp RoboCop? And how can you comp Amadeus or Fisher King? How are you doing doing your 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 P&Ls. Well, you you can't comp them because they're, you know, each movie has its own metrics. But isn't that is what's so f***ed up about the business right now is you said, yeah, you, that's exactly my point, is you can't comp the Fisher King or Amadeus or Platoon to the things you were doing. And Platoon, maybe you could comp it with some World War II movie. But now everything is comped. There's no way to make a movie unless you have comps for it. And therefore, we're backing ourselves into not making movies that you, that you made that are, that are so, in our lexicon that are so amazing. Yeah, well, that's why those are kind of accidents that happen, right? right? That that's the That's the problem. I think I was in the studio the other day and I asked somebody if they knew who the person was that was on the name on the building. <laughs> right? And they said no. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know? And but that's just apocryphal. Not not just because that person's young. It's 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 shitty because you've got if you're in this business, you owe it to yourself to understand what the f happened before you and learn it and learn the history of it. If you don't, I saw an interview with you on YouTube where you said, You think I just produced Shutter Island and, and Black Swan, right? And she's like, Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> I mean the fact of that that they don't have the just the time to sit down and go like you did with UA, like, how did this come about? You know, if I'm at Warner Brothers, who were the Warner Brothers? Who, you know, right. I, you know, who was Fox? I don't think anybody realizes that's a person's last name that, you know, I think most people think, oh, it's yeah. probably a Fox. You know, it's like the, the, the guys that came before. And that's the other thing. And so, and it's soothing for me because I get really worked up about this shit. It's soothing for me to read, like, The Man Who Made Movies, which is the story of Fox, who started mm-hmm. the Fox Studios, because he was dealing with the same bullshit I'm dealing with. Yeah. It just makes me feel better that it says, oh, it's not just me. That, you know, yeah. There's been a history of producers being treated like shit. You know, nothing's changed, you know, in that respect. <laughs> and yes. You know, and, and it does – it requires somebody with some depth that kind of puts puts it all together. Remember, I, you know, I was a history Right. You, well, you did say your history and politics you left behind. Clearly, you haven't. If you looked at you, if you look at your l- movies that you've made, you did not leave your history and politics. No, behind. I didn't. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm because I'm fascinated. Me by too. It. I'm, I want to know how I got here. Yeah. Right. I mean, because it's it's pretty clear, especially since I'm as I'm getting older. You know, I'm starting to realize, hey, it's finite as opposed to you know yeah. it won't be here forever. It's important for me to know 
how people got to where they got to. And so when you're going in and talking to Ted and then you're attempting to get your movies made now, mm-hmm. the kind of movies that you are have gravitated to throughout your entire career, the ones, your hundred ones, the mm-hmm. greatest ones, how are you finding the reception for those kind of movies now? I mean, obviously, Black Swan was such an odd way you got that movie I made, Shutter Island as well. How are you doing it now? I don't, you know, I in, in a lot of cases, I'm not sure that they know how they get to where they get to, <laughs> right. you know? So why would they, uh, you know, understand how I got to where I want right. to go to? I think generally I probably have a good reputation, you know, mm-hmm. for people from people that look to see what I've done. I try not to take it personal if somebody's thinks I'm not what I thought I, I was trying to build. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because I, I meet, there's a lot of younger people, and I, I'm trying to think back to when I was younger, right, thinking about these people. Mm-hmm. And in part, I remember writing people off as somebody who, you know, their, their best days were over. And thinking back now and thinking, well, is that what they think? You know, do they go... You know, why is Mike Metavoy here in the first place? You know, he's done, you know, whatever. You know, as I said, I don't take it personal. If they have an issue, this is what I want to do. Are you, you know, are you interested in doing it or not? Right. I mean, I'll have arguments about projects that I think, you know, people ought to pay attention to. Sometimes I can get in the room and convince them, and sometimes I can't. Yeah, well, by the way, you're in great company. We're all going through it. Yeah. Well, I always ask this question, so I'll just ask it of you, but it's going to be tough for you because you've been doing it so long and you have so many highlights. Can you remember one specific just best day on set where you were like, you looked around and you thought, this is why I'm doing it? Um, hmm. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think I can go, this is why I'm doing it. I think I, I can go, this is what I have been doing for a long time this is why i'm still doing any, it any particular memory that just j- comes to mind of a great moment on set no it's usually at the end of, <laughs> at the end of a movie where you go done <laughs> yeah it's it's you know it's pretty good i'm you know proud of being a part of it even even the ones that didn't work you right. know yes. for whatever reason you know there's just uh, i'm glad i you know have my name on that movie i'm glad you made all these movies too sir i'm i'm again i'm a gigantic fan thank you for being you and creating all this great stuff that we're going to be able to have for for eternity i really appreciate you doing this man thank Thank you you. appreciate it thank you for inviting me thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the producer's guide we're produced by kirsten woodward and steve delamater i want to answer all your questions about the business so make sure to tweet me at todd underscore garner or use hashtag producers guide on twitter see you next week Thanks for listening to The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Download new episodes every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts.